lame man, the water into wine, the healing of the blind man, all of those works are telling you plainly that Jesus is sent from God. If you want an answer, then just open your eyes, Jesus says. Just open your eyes. His works testify to who he is. But the religious leaders don't don't see the truth. They can't see the truth. That's where Jesus goes in verse 26. Listen again. Verse 26 is staggering. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. They can't see the truth. Again, this is a staggering statement from Jesus. You have to read him carefully here. Jesus does not say, he does not say, you are not my sheep because you do not believe. That's not what he says. That would put the emphasis on the Jew's ability. But Jesus puts the emphasis on God's initiative. Follow his his phrasing. Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The unbelieving crowd does not belong to the flock of God. They are not the sheep of God's pasture. They have not been born again by the Father through the Spirit. And that's why they don't believe. Because they have not tasted of God's grace. They don't belong to God's flock. Remember back in John chapter 6 when Jesus said, All whom the Father gives me will come to me. What causes someone to come to Jesus? The Father's giving them to the Son. That's what causes someone to come to Jesus. It's the same truth here in John chapter 10. This Jewish crowd does not listen to Jesus because they have not been given to Him by the Father. To put it in doctrinal terms, the one thing necessary to seeing and trusting and treasuring Jesus is the grace of God. Friends, we ought to be reminded, we ought to be reminded here that the question of trusting Jesus is not fundamentally a question of evidence or persuasive ability. Sometimes the unbelieving world likes to paint things in this way. If God would just prove that Jesus is the Son of God, then we would believe in Him. But that's not the issue at all. At all. Jesus' works, which are recorded in the Bible, are clear testimony. The issue is not evidence. The issue is not confirmation of the truth. The issue is not persuasive ability. The issue is the deadness of the human heart. People don't believe because they do not belong to God. They have not been born again, in other words. Mark it down. Mark it down. In the quest for truth... Human wisdom and insight and ability are not ultimate. Grace is ultimate. Grace is ultimate. God must grant sinners new life in order for those sinners to believe the clear testimony about Jesus. And if you don't think that the human heart is dead, read John 10. The Messiah himself is doing the works of God and they won't see it. They can't see it. This upcoming week, we're going to start gathering on Wednesday nights to pray together as a church. I hope that you'll come. Each week, we're going to pray for our own church. We're going to pray for other churches in the area. We're going to pray for missionaries around the world, including ones we send out and ones we don't even know. And in each of those situations, one of the things that we ought to pray for is the grace of God to open people's eyes. We ought to pray 
that God would do John 3, cause people to be born again, so that we will see the opposite of what happens in John 10, people believing in Jesus. So we're going to pray for the grace of God to open people's eyes. Whether it's a missionary family on the other side of the world like the woods, or whether it's the church down the street like Eastwood Fisherville where my friend Sean is the pastor, without God's grace, all of our labor is in vain. We have to have God working. We see it very plainly in John chapter 10. I would never dare to preach this on my own authority. But it's right here in John 10. You do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. The Jews ask for a plain answer, but Jesus has already given them a plain answer. The issue is not evidence or confirmation. The issue is the human heart. Grace, then, is necessary to see the truth about Christ. That takes us to the second perspective on grace. Verses 27 to 30. Grace is active to preserve the people of Christ. Grace is active to preserve the people of Christ. In verse 27, Jesus returns to the imagery of a shepherd and his sheep. And once again, Jesus emphasizes how his voice is effective in calling his sheep. Listen again, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Why do the sheep hear and respond to Jesus' voice? Answer, because Jesus knows them. Because they have been given to the good shepherd by the Father. All whom the Father gives to the Son will come and therefore the sheep hear Jesus' voice. God's grace in Christ is effective to save his people. But Jesus is not finished with this point. Not Not only is his voice effective to save God's sheep, Jesus' voice is also effective to keep God's sheep, to protect them. To say it a different way, the shepherd's grace is active not only at the beginning of the Christian life, but throughout the Christian life, praise God. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now that's a marvelous promise from Jesus. Notice how Jesus piles up the phrases to make his point. He could have just said, I give them eternal life. That would be sufficient to make his point. Eternal life, by definition, never ends. But Jesus keeps going. He gives them eternal life and they will never perish. Technically, that's redundant. But aren't you thankful that Jesus is redundant sometimes? I am. Eternal life means that nothing will ever snuff out the spiritual life that God creates in his people by grace. Your physical life will come to an end. Your physical life will come to an end, but your spiritual life, brothers and sisters, will never end. It will endure. Once God creates new life in you, your eternal life is sealed. You will never perish. Still, Jesus is not finished. (laughs) So far, we might be tempted to think of Jesus' words in these abstract terms. Eternal life sounds like a concept rather than something personal. Maybe it's something that philosophers argue about, but it's not going to help me tomorrow when I have to go to my job. That might be what we think. And if you do, notice how Jesus rounds off the point. He's gone from eternal life to never perishing. Now look at the last phrase. It's intensely personal. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 
Friends, that's the foundation for eternal life. Why will your spiritual life never end? Because Jesus Christ holds your life in His hand and nothing, not even death, can snatch the believer away from the Lord Jesus. Friends, this is the outworking of Jesus' blood on the cross. He died for the salvation of His people. And that means He will keep His people safe to the end. If Jesus Christ were to lose any of His people, then that means His death in some way had been in vain. And that's blasphemy. He didn't die in vain. He died to save His people and therefore He will keep His people. You could even say it more strongly than this. The glory of Christ's sacrifice is revealed in the eternal salvation of His people. The glory of the cross, part of the glory of the cross, is that Jesus' people are saved to the uttermost. The Apostle Paul says that at the end of history, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How, how will the people who bow before Jesus to confess His glory, how will they see that He is Lord? How will they know that He is glorious? They will know because all of Jesus' people will be saved at the end. He won't lose any of them. So the grand goal of human history is the glory of Jesus Christ. And that glory is bound up, friends, in you and I making it to the last day, secure in the faith. That's grace, brothers and sisters. That's grace. It's grace to you and to me and Jesus Christ. Right now, right now, the evil one and his minions are plotting all manner of schemes to harm the people of God. Right now, the fallen nature of this world is inflicting untold suffering on the people of Christ. And not a single scheme, not a single plot, not a single ounce of suffering will ever snatch Jesus' people away from him. We may lose our health and Jesus will keep us. We may lose our livelihood, and Jesus will keep us. We may lose our mental faculties, our ability to even recognize those whom we love, and Jesus will keep us. We may lose our lives, and Jesus will keep us. The good shepherd will keep his people to the end. This is the active power of the grace of God at work in the Christian life. He calls the dead to life He gives them to the good shepherd and the good shepherd keeps them eternally. How can this possibly be true? How can this possibly be true? These are nearly unfathomable thoughts. How can this be true? Notice Jesus' answer, verse 29. He tells you how it's true. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Again, we're stunned by what Jesus says. Our eternal salvation is part of the triune God's plan from eternity past. That's Jesus' point here. When Jesus says that his Father is greater than all, He's urging you and I to think of God at the maximum level of our understanding. 
So God is the creator. All things exist through him and to him. God is omnipotent. He possesses all power. God is self-sufficient. He depends on nothing other than himself. God is holy. He alone is God, unique, exalted, above all things. God the Father is greater than all. Think about God at the maximum level of your understanding. Amazingly, Jesus says that same God determined to save you before time began. And part of that determination was to keep you to the end. God, God, who made all things out of nothing, has determined to save you and me, my brother and sister in Christ. So try to fathom this thought. Your eternal life originated with the triune God and your eternal life rests secure with the triune God and therefore nothing can ever snatch you from God's hand. To emphasize the God-centered nature of every Christian's eternal life, Jesus makes an incredible statement in verse 30. Notice what he says, verse 30. I and the Father are one. God the Father and God the Son share the same nature. Both are fully God. This is a striking claim to deity on Jesus' part. Please don't miss that point. The Jews told Jesus, just tell us a plain answer. And he just did. I and the Father are one. He just told him the plain answer. You may recall that the most important passage in the Old Testament was Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was a statement of God's exclusive deity. And that confession, Deuteronomy 6.4, was the core of Israel's religious life. Unlike the pagan nations who worshipped many false gods, Israel worshipped the one God, the one true God, the Lord. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he is telling the Jews precisely who he is. He's not a rival God. He's not another God. He is the one God in human flesh. He is one with the Lord. He is one with Yahweh. He is one with the God who called His people out of Egypt. What is true of God is true of Jesus Christ. My Father and I are one. Here in John 10, Jesus makes this statement of His deity in connection with His work of saving us. Not only do the Father and the Son share the divine nature, but they also participate together in saving and keeping God's people. What God the Father purposed, God the Son fulfills. It's all of grace, you see, from beginning to end. Father, Son, and Spirit. It's all of grace from beginning to end. Listen, this is, this is perhaps the most important pastoral application of the whole section. Why, why do we affirm salvation by grace alone? Why do we celebrate and rejoice in the necessity of God's saving grace? Because, friends, because our assurance, our comfort is bound up in that truth. By grace, the triune God saves and He preserves those whom He saves. The good shepherd calls his sheep and praise God, the good shepherd keeps his sheep to the end. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith, nothing, nothing will snatch you from the Father's hand. 
That's perspective number two. This is all wonderfully encouraging to Christians, isn't it? It is. It's wonderfully encouraging to Christians. In the context of John 10, however, the Jews are not encouraged. Remember, they don't belong to Jesus' flock, so they don't hear the shepherd's voice. They hear only blasphemy. And that's where we find perspective number three on grace. From verses 31 to 39, grace is present in the patience of Jesus. Grace is present in the patience of Jesus. So this Jewish crowd believes Jesus is a blasphemer. Look at verse 31. They pick up stones to kill him. They make the connection in Jesus' words. They put together, I and the Father are one, in Deuteronomy 6.4. They put that together. They understand what Jesus is claiming. So they pick up stones to, to stone him because they believe he's a blasphemer. But before they throw the stones, Jesus presses them for an explanation. Verse 32. Jesus highlights that he has done many good works. So for which one are they going to stone him? Which miracle are you going to kill me for? Verse 33, the Jews respond, It's not for good works that we're going to kill you, they say, but because you make yourself out to be God. That's why we're going to kill you. They believe he's a blasphemer. Now, as readers of John's gospel, we ought to catch the irony here. The the Jews accuse Jesus of blasphemous pride. He has made himself to be God, they say. But the reality is, is, is the opposite, isn't it? Jesus has not made himself anything. In fact, Jesus has humbled himself by taking on human flesh. So Jesus is not opposed to God. He's not a prideful blasphemer. He is humble before God. He's even obedient to God. He is a man And he is God. The reality is quite the opposite of what this Jewish crowd thinks. They're going to to try to stone him. Now, at at this point, Jesus could easily write this crowd off for their hard-hearted refusal. He has told them again and again and again, but they don't listen to him. So he could write them off. But that's not what happens. Instead, with incredible grace, Jesus appeals to these very same people again to believe the truth. He appeals to them again. Starting in verse 34, Jesus builds this defense from the Old Testament that culminates in an appeal for them to believe him. Now, before we look at the details, I want to emphasize the grace present in this moment. Let's let's just put it in very clear terms. What does this crowd deserve right now? They deserve judgment. They deserve to be cut off from God. They deserve to never hear the truth of God ever again. They deserve judgment. But what does Jesus give them? The truth, again, with a patient appeal for them to believe. Now, let's be clear. There is judgment coming for those who reject Jesus, including this crowd of people. But that time of judgment is not yet. The time of judgment awaits Christ's return when he comes as king to put all of his enemies under his feet. Now is the time for grace. Now is the time for another appeal. Now is the time for the patience of God as he appeals to even his enemies to hear the truth. And that's precisely what Jesus does. He builds this argument from the Old Testament in order to appeal to this crowd. It starts in verse 34. 
And the aim of this argument is to get the crowd to slow down long enough to consider what they're doing. Just a general rule of thumb, rash conclusions that haven't actually thought through things are rarely ever good. So Jesus is encouraging these people, slow down. Think about what you're going to do. So he builds this argument from the Old Testament. Let's follow how he does this. It's a pretty fascinating argument. He begins by citing from Psalm 82. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? That seems like an obscure passage from the Old Testament to cite, doesn't it? You would think he would say, Doesn't the Bible say, Thou shalt not commit murder? But he doesn't, he cites Psalm 82. It seems a bit obscure. But if you go back and look at Psalm 82, and just this little side note, whenever the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, it's rarely ever quoting just that single verse. So Jesus is quoting Psalm 82, 6, but he wants you to think of Psalm 82 as a whole in quoting verse 6. So when you go back and look at Psalm 82 as a whole, Jesus' point becomes a bit clearer. This verse in Psalm 82 is addressed, most likely, to earthly judges, earthly rulers. Because earthly judges are entrusted with authority from God, the psalmist calls them gods, little g. The psalmist wasn't blaspheming when he said that. He wasn't committing blasphemy. He was describing the role of an earthly judge or an earthly magistrate. Earthly judges are God's representatives, so to speak. They enforce justice and righteousness on the earth, or at least they should. In that sense, what do earthly judges work like? What do they function like? They function like God in his role of enforcing and administrating justice. Psalm 82 even goes on to call these earthly judges sons of the Most High. That's pretty lofted language. Jesus' point is that Scripture sometimes uses exalted titles to refer to those who represent God on earth. That's why he quotes Psalm 82. Sometimes the Bible uses really lofty language to describe those who represent God. Now, look how Jesus applies that Old Testament point. Verses 35 and 36. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and Scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? This is the crux of Jesus' argument. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If Scripture can use lofty language about earthly judges who represent God, why would the Jews think it's blasphemy for the Son of God to say that he's one with the Father? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Scripture can't be broken, Jesus says. If you're wondering whether or not Jesus believed in the inspiration of the Bible, here's your answer. Scripture cannot be broken. Every single word in Scripture is purposeful. It's inspired by God, including Psalm 82.6, where judges are called gods. So if God's word is inspired, and if God's word refers to earthly rulers as little g-gods, shouldn't the Jews at least slow down before they charge Jesus with blasphemy? Shouldn't they just pump the brakes for a second and say, are we thinking about this rightly? And the answer is yes, they should slow down and think. Listen, Jesus is not using Psalm 82 
to prove that he's the son of God. He's not arguing from Psalm 82 for his deity. His works are clear enough that he is the son of God. And if you haven't seen a clear enough work yet, come back next week when he raises Lazarus from the dead. His works are clear enough. So Jesus is not arguing for his deity at this point. Rather, he is showing this unbelieving crowd that they haven't truly considered his words and his actions. They haven't actually thought through what he's doing. Their judgments are rash. Their conclusions are misguided and ultimately dangerous. He wants them to slow down and think. Now remember... These people are holding stones at this moment. Right? They're, they're holding rocks. So imagine the crowd with their arms raised and their fists clenched around rocks. And they, they're, just, they're just ready to, they're about to hurl the rock to kill Jesus. And in response, right, right as they're going to let the rock go, Jesus unwinds this long argument from the Old Testament that perhaps gives them just a moment's pause. But maybe they don't throw the rock. It's like a small little gap in their opposition. Just a small pause. Notice how Jesus steps into the pause. Verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. No hyped language. No rushed conclusion. Just a simple, clear, patient appeal. If the works aren't from God, then don't believe me, Jesus says. Then comes the second part. Verse 38. But if I do them... Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Friends, this is remarkable patience from Jesus Christ. It's an incredible appeal from Jesus. His works are indisputable. His works are indisputable. The water in John 2 became wine. You could taste it. The lame man in John 5 stood up and walked. You could watch him. The blind man in John 9, you could, could see. You could go ask him, just like the Pharisees did. The works are indisputable. Those works are right in front of you, Jesus says. Even if you don't believe me, even if you want to quibble about my words, at least believe the works. At least believe the works. Remember, they're holding stones. This is an incredible display of patience from Jesus Christ. These people are on the edge of killing him, and still Jesus appeals to them again with the truth. What do you call that kind of patience? You call it grace, friends. You call it grace. From the Son of God to those who would kill Him. Sadly, the people don't believe. Verse 39 is very clear. They try to arrest Jesus, but He escapes. His time has not yet come. They don't believe Him. So we could make some application here about the doctrine of sin and about how blind we are by nature to the things of God. Those would be legitimate points to make. But for today, I think it's more important that we see the grace of Christ on display in his patient appeal to his enemies. Again, they reject him. And again, Jesus patiently, graciously gives them the truth. Jesus argued from the lesser to the greater. Let's make an application from the greater to the lesser, from Jesus to us. If this was the heart of Christ while on earth, it should be our heart as well. So just going to be real plain with you for a second. I know that there are aspects of the culture 
right now that are both sad and infuriating. I feel the urge that many people do to wash my hands of this sin-obsessed world. And to let people just get whatever is coming to them. I feel that urge. But brothers and sisters, that's, that attitude is not the attitude of Jesus Christ. These people are holding stones to kill him. And Jesus appeals to them again to hear the truth. If that was the Lord's approach to a world blind in sin, shouldn't it be our approach as well? Before we write off unbelievers as hopelessly lost, shouldn't we make it our aim to reason with them? To appeal to them? To present the gospel to them again? Yes, I know that apart from the grace of God, no one is going to believe. I just preached that in this sermon. In the first point, yes, apart from the grace of God, no one will believe. But perhaps that's actually the takeaway from from this passage. In the same chapter, in the same section of verses, Jesus affirms the absolute necessity of God's grace and he appeals to people to hear the truth. He does both of them. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep, verse 26. You have to have the grace of God to believe. And even though you don't believe me, believe the works, verse 38. He appeals to them to believe. The necessity of God's grace does not negate the urgency of our appeal. The necessity of God's grace does not negate the urgency of our appeal. In fact, it ought to make it more urgent. That was Jesus' model. With grace, he was unbelievably patient with his enemies. We ought to be and do the same. That brings us to the, the last paragraph. This will be our conclusion today. Jesus appeals to his enemies. We see that. But if we're honest, verse 39 is still a bit daunting, isn't it? The, the people did not believe They didn't believe Jesus. How then can we carry on in the mission that Christ gave to us? Do you see the question? If if Jesus appealed to them and and they didn't believe him, how can we carry on in our work of, of appealing to the world as well? How are we supposed to keep going? Well, notice how the passage ends. This is so kind of God. Notice how the passage ends, verses 40 to 42. This is the final perspective on grace, number four. Grace will triumph in the mission of Jesus. Grace will triumph in the mission of Jesus. In verse 40, Jesus withdraws from Jerusalem. Why does he withdraw? Because the time is not yet for his his passion. Although it's coming very quickly. Chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12 are the last of Jesus' public events of his ministry. Then he enters Jerusalem in the middle of chapter 12. And from there, it's just a beeline to the cross. So it's not time for his passion yet, but that time is coming. So he withdraws across the Jordan River to where John the Baptist did his ministry. Notice what happens in this place where John the Baptist preached so faithfully. Verse 41, And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many Believed in him there. That's a powerful commendation of John the Baptist. 
He was faithful to his calling. John didn't do any signs. He didn't turn any water into wine. He didn't make any lame people walk. He didn't cause any blind people to see. John preached the truth. And in God's grace, John's ministry now bears fruit. Many believed in Jesus. We might be even so bold to say, why did so many believe in Jesus? Because John decreased so that Jesus could increase. John carried out his ministry. He prepared the way simply by being faithful. And now many trust in the Lord. Friends, this is, a, this is a small note in John's gospel. It's just a few verses tacked on at the end of the chapter. But don't let the brevity minimize the impact. The mission of Christ will advance. The gospel of Christ will triumph. The sheep will hear the shepherd's voice. And all whom the Father has given to the Son will come to him. John the Baptist's ministry is an encouragement and an example to us. He testified to Christ. John the Baptist decreased so that Christ would increase. John fulfilled his ministry with faithfulness. And now, in God's time, by God's grace and to God's glory, fruit is born. Many believed. So John the Baptist is dead, remember. He lost his head. But his ministry continues. And his faithfulness now bears fruit. He being dead, he still speaks. His ministry bears fruit, and it's all by the grace of God. What an encouragement to us, brothers and sisters. What an encouragement. The opposition to Christ continues, and it will continue. The blindness of sin endures, and yet, and yet, the grace of God is powerfully active in saving sinners. And where is that powerful grace found? Through the faithful ministry of people who fulfill what God has given them to do, people like John the Baptist who decreased so that Christ could increase. The grace of God is active in keeping those whom he saves. And so armed with that grace, we can go and do as John did, and faithfully testify to the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting that in God's time and by God's grace and to God's glory, he'll bear fruit in his time. I pray that'll be our takeaway this morning. I want it to be the takeaway for us whether it's your homes or your neighborhood or your workplace, I pray that we would be encouraged to be found faithful and that God, by His grace, would use us to bring many to believe in Jesus Christ. The opposition continues, but the grace of God is active in His mission and Christ will triumph. So may we go and be faithful as John was, all to the praise of God's glorious grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we do want to be faithful and see Christ exalted. We know, Lord, that apart from your grace, apart from your grace, people will not see the truth. So we pray for eyes to see. Father, we know that apart from your grace, none of us would make it to the end. So we praise you for your grace that keeps us. Father, we know that apart from your grace in Christ being so patient with us, we certainly would have wandered away. Help us, Father, to see the patience of Christ with us and to be patient with those around us. Father, encourage us to be about the mission, knowing for certain that the gospel will triumph, the kingdom of God will come, and the sheep will hear the shepherd's voice. We pray this in his name. Amen.